Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The public comment period is set to close soon on discussion over one of the largest land conservation decisions in U.S. history. The Biden administration is preparing an environmental review for opening more than 28 million acres of Alaska wilderness to mining and other development. More than 80 Alaska Native villages urge officials to permanently protect the land. Today we'll hear about that land in question from Alaska Native people who live there. We're back after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. This week, Native American U.S. Representatives Sharice Davids and Tom Cole reintroduced legislation to investigate, document, and report on the histories of Indian boarding schools and their long-term impacts on tribal communities. The bill has been endorsed by the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition. The coalition CEO, Deborah Parker, talked about the legislation at the 2023 White House Tribal Nation Summit much needed to help us tell the story, help us understand what happened to our Native American children in U.S. boarding schools. And we deserve, America deserves not only Native Americans, but students, but people, any human being who is living today deserves to understand the truth about what happened in the United States. Parker says they're seeking records and information from both the federal government and churches that ran the schools. And we know parents are still looking for children to this day, their relatives who never came home. Um, the parents, most of the parents are no longer with us, but there are elders who, know, who have brothers and sisters, siblings, cousins, who never made it home from the boarding school. We're trying to help families locate their loved ones. We have broken systems within our communities because we don't know where our loved ones are. The legislation would establish a formal commission to investigate federal Indian boarding school policies, develop recommendations for federal entities to help with healing efforts, and provide a forum for victims to speak. Representatives Davids and Cole, co-chairs of the Congressional Native American Caucus, say they're committed to investigating the abuses at the institutions. In the states they represent, Kansas and Oklahoma, there were a combined 90 federal Indian boarding schools. The truth and Healing Commission on Indian Boarding Schools Policy Act of 2024 has also been endorsed by the National Congress of American Indians. An indigenous author recently released a children's book on the jingle dress dance and its healing power. As the Mountain West News Bureau's Caleb Radel reports, the idea for the book came about during the COVID-19 pandemic. During the pandemic, Deidre Haverlock saw countless videos online of indigenous women and girls jingle dress dancing a century-old tradition that started during the global flu pandemic. Haverlock is a member of the Saddle Lake Cree Nation in Alberta, Canada. I was like, no wonder it's just so beautiful, right? It's 100 years later and they're still doing this, even more so, like it's just exploded. And I thought I wanted to capture this historic moment through a picture book. Why We Dance, a story of hope and healing, follows a young girl's relationships with her mother, aunt, and cousin as she gets ready for the jingle dress dance. The lyrical story ends with colorful illustrations of the joyful dance. Illustrator Allie McKnight is a member of the Shoshone Bannock tribes in Idaho. Celebrating healing is such a needed thing in this world, just considering what we deal with on a daily basis. And kids need that, like adults need that. 
The book is available in bookstores and online. For National Native News, I'm Caleb Radel. The Native American Basketball Invitational, or NABI, announced Wednesday a partnership with Grand Canyon University in Phoenix, Arizona. NABI serves Native youth and hosts an all-Native basketball tournament. In 2023, Native youth from across the U.S., Canada, and as far away as New Zealand took part in week-long events using courts around the Phoenix area. The partnership at GCU is expected to host more than 160 teams this summer with more than 1,600 athletes and 400 games on the college campus using 13 courts. The championship games will continue to be held downtown at the arena where the Phoenix Suns play. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean & Walker, LLP, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for over 40 years. More information available at HobbsStrauss.com. A historical trauma master class taught by Dr. Ruby Gibson and staff provides tuition-free online training to tribal members who are therapists, counselors, social workers, and traditional healers. Enrollment deadline is March 1st at freedomlodge.org, who support this show. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. For the first time, federal officials are considering opening a swath of pristine Alaskan wilderness, roughly the size of Tennessee, to mining and other development. The Bureau of Land Management is currently receiving public input on what the environmental cost of that action would be. At least 80 Alaska Native villages and other entities are on record in favor of federal protections against development. The public comment period ends next week. The area is called D-1 Land, named for the section as referenced in the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act of 1971. The Biden administration's Bureau of Land Management is determining the fate of D-1 Land after the Trump administration lifted mining restrictions. The Pew Charitable Trust calls it the largest opening of public land to mining in modern U.S. history. Today we'll talk with representatives of the Alaska Native people who live there. We also welcome your comments and questions. Call us at 1-800-996-2848. That number again, 1-800-996-2848. And our phone lines are now open. Joining us from Fairbanks, Alaska is Melinda Chase. She's an advisor for the Bering Sea Interior Tribal Commission and a tribal liaison for the Alaska Climate Adaptation Science Center and she's a tribal member of Anvik, Alaska, who sits on her local village corporation. Good morning, Melinda. Thanks for joining us. Ah, good morning. Thank you. It's great to be here. Great to have you. Joining us also from Fairbanks, Alaska, is Lisa Elana. She is on the advisory group for the Bering Sea Interior Tribal Commission and a staff member with Kerouick Incorporated. She's a member of the King Island Native community. Good morning to you as well, Lisa. Good morning, Sean. Thank you. 
You're welcome, and thank you for joining us. From Holy Cross, Alaska, we're joined by Eugene Paul, the chief of the Holy Cross tribe. Good morning, Chief Paul, and welcome. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. And joining us from Nulato, Alaska, is Michael Mickey Stickman. He's the former first chief of the Nulato Tribal Council and an executive board member of the Bering Sea Interior Tribal Commission. He's Yukon Koyukon. Welcome, Mickey, and good morning. Good morning, Sean, and thank you for the uh, talk show. Absolutely. Well, let's go ahead and get this talk show started. Melinda, I'd like to begin with you by helping us gain a better understanding of the land we're discussing today. Please tell us in what areas of Alaska D1 land is located and how is it different from other federally managed land in the state? Well, thank you, Sean. Um, Maybe I'll give a big picture um, of that uh, first. Um, And so, you know, as Alaska Native and Indigenous people, um, you know, we, uh, along with the animals and the fish that we rely on, need our healthy and connected lands and waters. And so in the late uh, 1960s, uh, many, everybody, a lot of people know that, of course, there was a rush to develop the oil fields that were found up north and put a pipeline across the state. And the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act, or ANCSA, was passed in 1971 in part a response to that rush. Um, and it was an attempt to settle our land ownership. Um, D1 lands are really, what they are, are our traditional homelands that are now public lands and have a protective status. And these are all across Alaska. Um, in particular, um, 158 million acres um, were designated with this uh, D1 status. And this uh, particular um, D1 issue that we're talking about now um, is looking at opening up potentially 28 million acres across various areas of Alaska. Um, The D1 uh, status or the designation really protects, you know, our way of life as indigenous people. You know, they, it strengthens our ability to maintain our hunting and our fishing and our uh, way of life and our connection to the land. Um, It really helps us to maintain, you know, what we see as our, our wild food economy, our traditional way of life. Um, And so that land designation status um, has done so for really a half a century. And so this is a monumentous um, decision. It's to me, it's like one of the biggest decisions that we have in front of us. I know since our, um, both our ancestors and the generations before us were looking at our our land settlement. Um, D1 protects us from mining and mineral leasing across uh, these 28 million acres um, that primarily uh, uh, run over a lot of the western coast of Alaska down into southwest Alaska and over into the um, parts of the, the south central interior um, and down into the Bristol Bay area. Um, there's also some in the area called the Ring of Fire. So there's five resource management um, plans that um, govern these public lands under BLM, and those are in those areas I just mentioned. Um, And really what it 
what they do is um, protect our habitat. They they allow us to um, have a protection against mining and extractive resources, uh, really to um, maintain our way of life. And so we need uh, we need the Secretary of Interior uh, Deb Holland to maintain these protections, and we definitely need to uh, voice that at this time. Thank you, Melinda. So these D1 lands, they stretch across a wide portion of the state of Alaska. Why now? Why are we suddenly talking about changing these federal protections that have been in place uh, for more than 50 years since this designation came about through ANCSA? Well, under the last administration, there was um, a proposal. Um, you know, that was actually there was a uh, and say proposal that five of the um, area plans, this 28 million acres, uh, the last administration moved to lift these protections. And, um, and in fact, um, the Bering Sea uh, Interior Resource Management Plan, one of these five plans that governs um, a chunk of this um, that which is the area that my home village is in um, and many of us on this call um, the only protective status that we have in that area plan is the d1 um, but under the last administration there was a move to um, lift them and then this administration came in and uh, questioned that move in part because there were several things that were not uh, considered or analyzed um, in terms of lifting the D1 protections, uh, what wasn't what wasn't analyzed was um, how it lifting those and having the possibility of oil and gas um, development or mineral extraction, its impact on our hunting and fishing and way of life, that was not considered. Um, the the cumulative impacts with our you know vastly um, and rapidly changing climate. Um, and analysis under the uh, NEPA as well as under the Historic Preservation Act. So really, it, it didn't have a solid enough analysis or, you know, uh, look at how lifting those D1s would impact um, us across uh, rural Alaska and indigenous Alaska. And now this analysis is unfolding, uh, this review, this study, also public comments are being taken. Melinda, what, are, what exactly are the alternatives that BLM is considering? Uh, could they lift the protection? Could they maybe do a partial lift? Or is it possible they won't do anything at all? Yes, there are four different alternatives. So you know, as you mentioned, there's a current environmental impact statement out um, that is looking at um, the, these impacts, you know, the, really the um, ramifications of um, what, what that would mean. And so there's four different alternatives um, set out, and those, you know, give a range of alternatives. Um, you know, one alternative is to uh, lift, um, or not lift, to, to retain them. Um, that's the, the current alternative. And then the additional four uh, uh, three other alternatives, excuse me, um, the two um, uh, alternative B and alternative C uh, look at lifting um, ranges of these public land protections, 
um, different um, different levels of acreage um, and different specific public lands um, orders. And then the um, the last one looks at uh, lifting all of them. So it's it's a range, and it's very complex. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like yeah, it. Yeah. Well, Melinda, what happens if if BLM does lift these federal protections? Are there already mining interests lined up with projects within the D1 area? Um, I I would say there's definitely. Um, either mining interests or access to mining, right? Uh, we, we have a state government that's really looking at resource development. Um, that was uh, forefront in one of the messages during the recent uh, uh, state address um, under this uh, state administration governor. And it's really um, significant right now because, you know, there's a uptick in looking at uh, critical and rare minerals um, Alaska has 50% of the critical and rare mineral, minerals um, that are needed um, for some of the uh, so for some of the materials that we need for renewable energy, and yet um, that whole um, issue has not had um, equitable representation with Indigenous people at the table. So it's um, it's really critical right now that we are. Um, we are addressing this and um, looking at uh, potential protections, keeping those, maintaining those protections. We're going to take a short break now and continue our conversation with D1 Protected Lands in Alaska. Totems are sacred carvings by tribes along the northern Pacific coast. Carving them is a ceremonial process. Right now, there are a number of totems in public places by non-native carvers under scrutiny because they appropriate native images and symbols. We'll look at the authentic origin of totems on the next Native America Calling. Are you a Native American healthcare provider, recovery counselor, social worker, domestic and sexual abuse advocate, or traditional healer working in Native American communities? Dr. Ruby Gibson will begin an advanced immersion in healing historical trauma. This online master class in somatic archaeology uses the lens of a seven-generational recovery approach providing powerful modalities and is offered tuition-free to tribal members. Registration deadline is March 1st. Info at freedomlodge.org who support this show. You're listening to Native America Calling, and today we're talking about federal protection for land in Alaska. The federal government is considering lifting protections on millions of acres of land in place since 1971. The Bureau of Land Management will soon decide what the environmental cost would be for changing that protection status. The area's tribes are weighing in on that process, and you can join the conversation now, too, by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Lisa Alana is on the advisory group for the Bering Sea Interior Tribal Commission, and she joins us now in Fairbanks. Lisa, I want to ask you more about this BLM environmental impact statement that we talked about briefly with Melinda. What is the process now? Where are we at in that process with the issuing of that statement on the possible opening of these D1 lands? Well, right now, um, what we see is the BLM is in the DEIS 
um, kind of phase. They're in the middle of this environmental impact statement. And they will be um, hearing public comment until February 14. And I think that's important for our listeners to know that they have the opportunity to take action and get a hold of the BLM. If you go on the BLM um, e-planning website, you'll see options for you to be able to comment on this. It's um, This process will probably go through summer, and then the BLM um, will kind of wrap it up. And we're kind of happy that they're going to do it this quickly because there's an election coming up. Right, so timing is very important. Um, we we need to be able to um, push it through right now because there's a lot of fear about what's going to happen in the next election. So um, one thing to note too, though, is that tribes that want to do tribal consultation with the BLM on this issue, they are absolutely encouraged to do so and it will not affect the timeline um, for the BLM processing their um, environmental impact statement. Um, so if there are tribes listening and you want to learn more and you want to engage the federal government, the BLM, um, to a consultation process, they are absolutely um, open to that. Just make sure and contact them. One of the things that we're really hoping that people understand here is the absolute um, devastation to... Uh, Alaska Native people and rural Alaskans um, if we lose our subsistence priority and the conveyance of these lands to the to the state um, if that happens we lose that subsistence priority um, and then you know those lands would be open to all that development which would increase the fragmentation for our for the habitat for um, all the animals and birds and fish um, that we rely on, that we live in relationship with um, in our areas. So really important. 80% of the communities and the people in the communities that are in these planning areas that are under question, they rely, 80% of their diet is from the land and waters that are around them. That's that's an incredible amount. And 95% of Alaska is considered to be food insecure. So we don't have fancy uh, shopping stores out in the villages. We have maybe one corporation native store, um, and uh, we don't have a lot of selection. A lot of people rely mostly on harvesting from their, from their lands and waters. So thank you, Sean. Appreciate that background, Lisa. I'm going to take a call now. Desiree, who is listening on KYUK in Bethel, Alaska. Good morning, Desiree. Uh, good morning. It's Beverly. I'm sorry, um, Beverly. Well, that's all right. Waka. Good morning. Good morning to you as well, Beverly. Yes. Well, I I felt compelled to call in. Um, the Bureau of Land and Management wasn't able to hold their public hearing uh, for comments here in Bethel, Alaska, and. A lot of us were anxious for that meeting so that our voices could be heard. I was born here in Bethel and raised on this land and the Kuskokwim River. I'm 72 years old and a Hitzahakamut Native Council tribal member. 
and co-founder of Mother Kuskokwim Tribal Coalition, who have been outspoken um, on this issue. And it, I was all ready, you know, to give my testimony and was so disappointed, but Secretary of Interior Deb Holland will will receive this. Um, there's so much pressure by leaders to open up this land. All righty. Uh, I think we lost Beverly there, unfortunately. We got another caller on the line, though, Lisa, who is listening online in Thompson Pass, Alaska. Good morning, Lisa. Are you there? Good morning. All right, Lisa, go ahead. All right. Looks like we don't have Lisa on the line either. We'll go ahead and get this squared away. Sometimes, folks, when we uh, have callers in Alaska, sometimes we struggle a little bit with the phone lines. But, uh, Lisa, I want to go back to you now, and let's talk a little bit more about uh, what the likely scenario is going to be once this environmental impact statement comes out. I mean, there are a lot of competing interests here. In fact, both senators from Alaska, Lisa Murkowski and Dan Sullivan, favor revoking the protection orders for D1 lands. In fact, Murkowski called the protections for the land outdated. So uh, what do you think is going to happen here, and how are all these competing interests ultimately going to be affected? Well, that's a huge question, right? And nobody quite knows the answer. But I really hope that um, our leadership understands how critically important it is for Alaska Native people and rural Alaskan people to have access to food and to live in um, areas that are not chopped up into little chunks with development here and there, causing disturbances to the wildlife that we rely on and live with um, for food. Um, and, and the environmental impacts of development are a major concern as well. Uh, so I don't know, um, and, and you know, I, I haven't been in this um, conversation long enough to be able to really understand the complexities of it all. Um, but I think that um, what Biden has done, what President Biden has done, has kind of rolled back what was really trying to roll down the hill too fast. The, the previous administration entered into the process without doing appropriate steps according to regulation and law. So um, thankfully, we have an administration that's taking a look at that, how that process was done incorrectly and um, correcting the steps. So our voices are being heard um, this time around, which is good. And again, we encourage people to, to comment uh, by going on the e-planning site on the BLM um, website. Um, but I, I, I don't have any predictions, really, about um, how this is going to shake out. But I just really hope that our, our leadership understands the importance of our subsistence resources. Thank you. Lisa, are, are you at all disappointed in the Biden administration for not being uh, more proactive and not making a f more definitive effort to, pr to keep these lands in protection? I mean, some people might say, uh, some of this policy is inconsistent. Yeah, I've, I'm not going to comment on, on things that I don't have good knowledge on, but maybe there's other people in the group that have um, deeper knowledge than I do on that. 
All right. Thank you, Elisa. Let's try the phones again. Beverly, are you there? Hello. Hi, Beverly. You're on the air. Sorry about that earlier. Oh, my gosh. I get, keep getting kicked off. I'll, I'll say this quick. I'm from Bethel, Alaska. I'm a 72-year-old um, Oritzahakami Native Council tribal member, co-founder of Mother Kuskokum Tribal Coalition. BLM um, wasn't able to have their public hearing in Bethel, but there's been over 15 public hearings across Alaska. Almost all the people that have testified are for Alternative A, take no action. For 50 years, the D1 lands were protected, primarily protected for um, indigenous people of, of Alaska to safeguard their food sources. And I'm hoping Deb Holland and President Biden um, hear the people of Alaska asking for that protection. For over 50 years, our land, um, D1 lands, have been protected. But the truth is there's a lot of pressure from people that want to develop large-scale extraction mines. They don't care that our people pick berries or gather greens, smoke jar, freeze fish. They don't think about the birds that migrate over these lands. Um, they just aren't thinking about the people of rural Alaska. And so, you know, my heart and our hearts, my voice and our voices, I hope are heard that, you know, it's a lot of tribes across Alaska. We want no action on D1 lands, and we want to protect it for generations ahead. We don't want the comment period extended. This is uh, personally my my own opinion, um, and I just urge compassion for our tribes. You know, all our right. people thrived on these lands despite all the threats. So I'm supporting Alternative A, along with all the other voices, to take no actions and protect D1 lands. Rihanna. All right. All right. Thank you, Beverly. Appreciate uh, your call this morning. Let's go back to Lisa listening online in Thompson Pass, Alaska. Hi, Lisa. We've got you back on. Hi. Thank you. Uh, yes, <clears throat> I'm, I'm going to take a little U-turn. My, my main concern was actually to address what a change in land ownership means. Uh, be, I, I'm definitely concerned that if the protections are released and the state takes conveyance and the state then turns our magical, uh, just uh, uh, epic uh, land into private ownership, uh, that, you know, that I think that's poor public policy, turning public land into private ownership for especially for pillage of the land um and i i'd like to address because i hear that most of the concerns are related to subsistence and i think it's important to note that in the eis communities that did not have historic subsistence studies were punished and left out and other studies that were 30 years old were used for the eis 
preparation as if they were today. And we know that migration patterns and so much has changed in 30 years. Uh, and then more, so many folks now, because of a lot of these changes, have to travel more than 50 miles for subsistence. And the EIS was limited to 50 miles, which is not respectful to the people of the land. Uh, and, and then countless folks, whether they're from Valdez, Homer, Ketchikan, Kenai, Seward, many other communities that, that rely on this land to feed their families, they're not even considered at all because uh, that, that would just be considered recreation. Uh, and 77% of the federal subsistence permits in Alaska, uh, the rural federal priority permitting is in the Atna region. That's unit 13 and 11. And so you're looking at about 4,000 people that are dependent on this land. And those people, that area has that one of the highest percentage of top filings by the state. So it's most likely if these protections are to be removed, then the state has already top filed those lands that 77% of folks in the Atna region are dependent on. Uh, so again, I just think it's, it's really poor public policy. All right. Um, and, and I appreciate the opportunity to, you know, get this out to folks because sadly I think that very few people are aware of what is at stake. All right, uh, Lisa, thank you uh, for that call. And, and you really put a fine point on just the complexity at stake here and, and the nuance of, of how these policies and how these uh, decisions could ultimately play out. I want to go back to Melinda briefly here before we go on to our next guest. And Melinda, here's a question I, I want to ask you, because there could be an argument that 28 million acres is a lot of land and it could maybe possibly accommodate a variety of uses. What's your response to that uh, when people say that? Uh, because I know your group thinks protections are necessary across all 28 million of these acres. Well, I think, I mean, actually to take another angle on it, right? Um, as what was previously stated, you know, we, Alaska is going under um, a tremendous amount of change, right? We have two to 4% um, warming. Um, greater and greater degree warming than other areas of the country, other areas of the world, right? And that um, stress is really stressing our animals and all of people across Alaska, right? It means access to um, our food, you know, whether or not, you know, our rivers are frozen to access food or whether they're, um, you know, we're in drought in some areas or whether we have too much snow, it's, it's, it's not just impacting us as people, it's impacting our animals. And then you, you add the stress of, um, you know, development uh, and, the, and the stress of compounding, um, intra, uh, compounding um, stressors uh, that are becoming increasingly evident with extreme weather. Um, and that is, um, that's a, that's, puts our animals and our livelihood across Alaska, um, whether you are urban or rural or semi-rural or semi-urban, um, that's impacting all of Alaska. You know, the Andrick River um, is the largest chum salmon run of 
um, in, in Alaska, and in, in our, like many of our salmon species, it's declining. Um, and uh, the same thing, there's other areas um, up north that are caribou habitat. And you, you have to think about the connectivity and the whole of experience that's happening across Alaska. Um, yes, it's happening differently in different regions because the development that has happened in those regions, you know, the Atna region has a tremendous amount of um, people coming into that area um, that provides, you know, that really leads to competition for um, that area on uh, their wild food sources. And so you cannot just look at um, all these areas in silos, you know, and think about um, one particular area. You know, our lands and our waters are connected and these D1 protections um, strengthen that connection and make that really critically important for um, what we're facing right now and what we're going to continue to face at a more rapid pace in the future. All right. Thank you, Melinda. We're going to take another break and we come back. We're going to talk with Chief Eugene Paul, Holy Cross, Alaska. Does your club, institution, or other group need custom branded apparel? A wide variety of t-shirts, hoodies, and much more, all custom printed or embroidered, are available from nativescreenprinting.com, a division of Skyscreen Printing who support this program. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash tribalrelations. This is Native America Calling. Today we're focusing on millions of acres of land in Alaska designated as D1 land. The Bureau of Land Management is doing an environmental impact study to inform a decision on whether to withdraw federal protections. And a coalition of 38 interior Alaska Native tribes say they want those protections in place. And we're going to speak with one of those tribal representatives right now. From Holy Cross, Alaska, we're joined by Chief Eugene Paul. Good morning again, Chief Paul. And uh, please tell our listeners, how close is Holy Cross to these D1 lands? Yeah, hey, good morning, uh, Sean there. Um, I just want to say thank you to your radio station to um, give an opportunity to speak on these um, important decisions that uh, the federal government's going to uh, put on to our people and our, and our villages. So my, um, my village is right in Jason's with the federal land. So I could say if you were at your own place there and you stepped out your back door and took one step out of your door there, I'm stepping on federal land. So it's um, right on the back doorstep of my village here. So that's how close we are to the federal D1 uh, land. So this is your backyard we're talking about here, Chief Paul. Uh, tell us more about the Bering Sea Interior Tribal Commission. Who's part of this group? So it's um, it's a broad. I mean, it's broad. So it's really a, a organization that um, um, is set in um, three different nonprofits throughout Alaska. So one of the um, first nonprofits that are involved is Canada uh, Chief. And that is um, a nonprofit that's located in Fairbanks. But, you know, throughout the interior, we have close to, what is it, 42 federalized, recognized tribes. So that's 
like the whole base of the interior reaching all the way up to the, um, like I say, all the way up to the um, upper part of Alaska. And then the second part of it is um, ABCP, and that's in the Bethel. Um, their office, I think, is located in Bethel there, and they have close to uh, 57 or 56 around their uh, federal recognized tribes and uh, the Quaric region that's located in the Norton Sound up in uh, Nome. And um, they have close to 12 federalized recognized tribes. So it's a, this is a really a um, big um, leadership that's uh, involved in this tribal Bering Sea. Absolutely, Chief Paul. Um, well, tell us a little bit more about how you folks are using uh, the land now, the D1 lands that sit adjacent to Holy Cross. So, yeah, we uh, <laughs> we use it year-round. So, basically, it's from the time when the birds start singing in the spring to the time the snow starts falling in the, in um, <laughs> October. So, it's uh, we basically use, a, we use our land the whole year, so... I mean, it's berry picking, it's hunting, it's um, fishing, ice fishing, and um, gathering birds, and it's just basically our um, our our garden. So basically, our that that kind of supports our community year the whole year. So that's what we have. Yeah. Uh huh. Well, Chief Paul, you know the other side of this argument, right? People will say, "Well, subsistence, obviously, that's important, but." What about the opportunities that come, could come about through development? Uh, perhaps new jobs or skills coming to the area, economic development. What's your response to that? Okay. Yeah, I know for my village, you know, I'm not connected to the roadway. And um, it's basically uh, we fly, fly here on an airplane. Springtime, we could, we, could boat, we could boat in by the river, but... Um, our economy is not really focused on the dollar dollar amounts because of the you know like um, you could say like the stock market really affects um, big cities that are tied into the goods and the groceries and stuff that um, we most of our diet is over seventy five percent off our land um, and it's um, something that we uh, really hold sacred our community and teach our, you know, it's like I was putting talk to you, take care of what's out there. And um, it's, um, I think it would be, one of the stories was, um, I think it was one of the elders or one of the um, things I was watching one time, you know, this elder uh, asked the federal government, you know, I'll give you this much money to uh, buy and purchase your land. And um, the elder, elder said, you know, well, he was sitting by the fire. He said, "Well, throw your dollar bill in that fire and then pull it, pull it back out." And I always said, "No, I can't." Or the uh, federal government said, "No, I can't do that. The, my money will be gone." And the elder <laughs> was holding the dirt in his hand, and he uh, he threw it in the he threw it in the fire. And he said, "Well, my land will uh, never burn and never go away." So I think it's the most important thing that we have to protect and cherish. I know it's not it's not all. You know, like our leadership in our tribal guarantee, we're not asking all of the land to be protected. These lands are 28 million acres, but if you look at the federal government, they own way more than that. It's just mm-hmm. the 28. 
eight million acres is our backyard, and that's what we wanted to really protect. They could they could do whatever the millions of acres they have, but this part this part is our boundaries of our villages, so that's right. really important to us. To Chief Paul, I want to ask you one more question before we move on to our next guest. Uh, this call for public comments that's going to end here in just about a week and then after that uh, perhaps a decision will be made in the next few months how confident are you that these protections are, are going to remain i'm i'm feeling i'm feeling really well like some of the, some of the president uh, advisors you know we we could never know how the government's going to go their their decisions could be you know the opposite turn but um, feeling, um, feeling pretty confident throughout these testimonies that they're hearing, our people wanted to retain all of it, you know, retain those 28 millions and keep it in the protection. Because not only that, if we do, if we do get this ruling, it opens up the whole thing of just um, sitting together, and it's not like we're going to own the land. We're not going to be the sole, the tribal leadership's not going to be the sole owners of the land. It's just that we have these protections that we could be able to, you know, share with others. And it's just that we, 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 we would be able to sit on the table um, directly across, you know, the federal lands to uh, manage and maintain these lands that um, we, you know, what's it called, really, you know, our resources that we um really rely on we don't we don't go out and get it get it all you know we get what we need and, um then we look forward for the spring for you know upcoming uh refresh um all the other animals growing and you know having their uh babies and stuff so yeah i feel confident all right chief paul appreciate you joining us this morning Next up, we have Mickey Stickman, former first chief of the Nulato Tribal Council and an executive board member for the Bering Sea Interior Tribal Commission. Mickey, again, good morning, and thank you for joining our show. And uh, are you there, Mickey? Uh, yes, Sean. Thank you for the show, and uh, good morning to everyone uh, listening. You bet. You bet. Awesome. Well, Mickey, I want to ask you, because the lands we're talking about today, these D1 lands, they've been a topic of resource development and protection for many years. This back and forth has gone on for decades. How is it affecting Alaska Native communities like yours? Well, actually, for my Native community, uh, it all started back in uh, 2013 with the Bering Sea Interior Resource Management Plan that BLM put out. So it started out, uh, you know, with that plan, and uh, we, the the Nevada tribe, was looking at uh, well, because the plan was uh, planning to open up 99.9% uh, .9 of all BLM land for uh, for mineral extraction and other uh, other uh, activities for. Uh, instead of uh, actual indigenous use, um, you know, our use of the land is uh, uh, basically for uh, our supermarket. And so any kind of uh, mineral extraction or any kind of resource development is going to have an effect on our ability to, um, to collect these um, and harvest uh, these resources that we, we use and the resources that we're talking about are, are the natural renewable resources. Uh, we're not talking about the 
the gold, the silver, the copper, or, or things like that that's not renewable. Um, the the indigenous people live off the, the, the land and the, the, the river, the sea, the ocean, mm-hmm. whatever the, the sky provides. You know, Chief Paul told you that our, our life depends on the land. Uh, it doesn't depend on, a lot of it doesn't depend on actual cash dollars. Uh, All right. We do have to have cash dollars for basic things in the village, like uh, well, uh, running water and electricity. But uh, the majority of our, our food um, comes from the land, so uh, that's why the land is so important to us because it, it's our supermarket. Let's take another caller, Tim, listening in Bethel, Alaska, on KYUK. Good morning, Tim. Hello. Good morning. Uh, thank you for taking my call. And really appreciate the show this morning talking about our 28 million acre BLM land that we have. I live in Bethel, but um, I'm a former resident of Marshall, Alaska, uh, which is um, in close proximity to the BLM lands that are that we were talking about. There's a lot of cultural and traditional um, value to the land as well, not only for mineral and oil development, or perhaps. Um, <clears throat> Perhaps a, a homestead or or whatnot. Um, you know, we have a lot of connection to it. Our, a lot of our ancestors, um, including my dad and myself, we um, hunted, fished, and gathered uh, within those areas. And um, and you know, I've been down to the lower forty-eight. I've traveled across. I've driven across, and I've seen miles and miles and miles of um, fences that I've seen. Uh, there's a lot of uh, no hunting, no trespassing um, in areas that um, you know private uh, private landowner policies and also uh, development areas. Uh, a lot of it uh, says no trespassing, and when this land goes into private hands, um, that is just not compatible with our current way of life and our current um, dependence on the resources that, that we depend on. All in, right. in that area. Um, <clears throat> All right, Tim. Okay, appreciate that call. Uh, we're running a little low on the timeline here, so I'm going to move on to our next caller, Sophie, also up in Bethel, Alaska. Good morning, Sophie. Good morning. Thank you so much for having this conversation. I just wanted to call in and encourage everybody who is listening to go in and make your comments. Those 28 million acres are so valuable to us as the Native people of Alaska. And a lot of the lands that they're considering in the yukon Kuskokwim area are in the mountainous areas. These lands are very delicate, and all of the water, all of the snowpack melt that runs out of those mountains, these are rivers, are salmon-spawning tributaries, and there are uh, migration pathways for the animals that we so depend on. Um, I really want everybody to get their voice out there. Let's let our officials know, the ones that we've elected that are actually pursuing this, that... Well, we're the constituents, and we want to maintain these lands. They are worth so, so much to us. All right. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
All right, Sophie, appreciate that call coming from Beth, Alaska. I want to go back to to Mickey Stickman here. We've got a couple minutes before we have to wrap up. And uh, Mickey, there's also been discussion about tribal co-management of D1 lands. Do you think that's an option worth pursuing in the future? Uh, Absolutely. Uh, You know, there's lots of uh, uh, successful uh, co-management schemes out there, especially, you know, like the, the... uh, um, the Whaling Commission, you know, the, the Sea Otter Commission. There's a there's a lot of good examples of uh, co-management out there, and uh, so I really believe that um, it's possible, huh? Co-management, yes, certainly an interesting option. Uh, of course, it was already been mentioned that we've got a, a presidential election coming up here later this year. Uh, what's your concern there, Mickey? Uh, if we see a change in the uh, presidential administration next year? Well, actually, um, that's one of the things uh, why um, uh, we're actually having this uh, comment period, I guess, because of the the last administration signed off on it too quick. And uh, a lot of the uh, things in the environmental impact statement, um, you know, the the environmental impact statement wasn't really actually um, fully done uh, because the indigenous people, um, our our use of the land was not considered. And... um, um, even in the plan. Um, so, yeah. You know, we have um, we have climate change happening in, in our state of Alaska, and you know, um, you can tell by looking at the, the the big the big the big things that we usually have in in our state, like uh, like uh, salmon runs and uh, big uh, big uh, caribou herds. Well, those big salmon runs and those caribou herds are slowly depleting uh i work on the arctic western caribou herd uh, for, for the for the western arctic and uh, in the last 20 years our, our herd went from 680,000 animals to to 160,000 animals uh, uh, just in the last couple of years and uh, so for the first time indigenous harvest has been uh, can has been curtailed and limits have been decided on and uh, you know and and then for us on the Yukon there's absolutely zero fishing so you know a big all right Mickey uh, I'm sorry Mickey but but we're now out of time Uh, I want to thank you and all of our other guests who joined us today as well as our callers to give us an update here on D1 lands in the state of Alaska Please, listeners, join us again tomorrow for a conversation about the intersection of cultural appropriation and totem poles. Hope you'll tune in. Pursuing a degree in higher education is attainable, and with a scholarship from Native Forward Scholars Fund, it is more affordable. From aerospace to veterinary medicine, as the largest direct scholarship provider to Native students in the U.S., Native Forward has empowered over 22,000 students from over 500 tribes in all 50 states in pursuit of their undergraduate, graduate, and professional degrees. Info and applications at nativeforward.org who support this show. Kwali <laughs> <laughs>
EIHS Kachi Kachu Healthcare.gov Katil Kain Kachu 1 800 318 2596 Medicare Medicaid Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.